distinguished Chief Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, esteemed Professor Emeritus Charles Taylor, Dr. Professor David Naylor, and to all present at this extraordinary event, good evening. My name is Larry Krauss. I am deeply honored this evening to introduce this wonderful program on behalf of Torah in Motion, an organization that, while based in Toronto, is recognized globally in the Jewish world. Through its conferences, symposia, speaker series, interviews, and panel discussions, Torah in Motion explores with passion and honesty, with relevance and sophistication, the complex interface between Judaism and the modern world. Torah in Motion derives its name from its dynamic, free-flowing approach to the study and understanding of Torah, and has over the past 10 years amassed a library of 1,200 MP3s and reaches over 6,000 people in 31 countries with its programming. Too often in today's world, dialogue is an exercise in trying to undermine the next person's point of view instead of hearing it, or preaching to the already converted rather than learning from another's perspective and engaging with them. Torah in Motion consistently avoids these traps and creates real and meaningful discourse on the most cutting edge and pressing issues impacting religion in the contemporary society. I invite you to check them out on the web. The founders of Torah in Motion, Jake Hellman and Elliot Malamed, together with their spouses, Elena Kelman and Leah Malamed, are dedicated, innovative, and relentless in their effort to make Torah in Motion relevant and substantive in the realm of Judaism and Torah study. As the director of a private equity firm who seeded their first program, I can honestly say that I consider Torah in Motion to be among the best investments I have ever made. Tonight's program is being sponsored by my family in commemoration of the Yortzite or anniversary of my father's death 43 years ago in 1968. An underlying fundamental principle of Judaism is a belief in the permanent existence of a soul or neshama and in its indestructibility. A belief that the manifestation of man in the physical world is like the tip of an iceberg where the full and complete reality or essence is not readily apparent. A belief that Without a soul, there can be no life, and that anything that exists has behind it a spiritual underpinning. The anniversary of one's death is understood in Judaism to be an opportunity to elevate the soul of a deceased person to new, and spiritual, height, to new spiritual heights and enhance the connection of that soul with God and strengthen its influence in this world. In part, we believe that this can be facilitated by participating in Torah study on behalf of a departed soul. My father, Nota Kraus, was born in 1910 and did not have the luxury of any formal education or of being able to study Torah seriously. He suffered through both world wars. His family was dislocated from Poland during World War I when he was just a child. And in 1941, during World War II, while engaged in forced labor on behalf of the Nazis in another district, the Jews of his hometown, Slochov, including his wife and daughter, were liquidated, murdered. Escaping, he hid with others for the next four years under the floor of a barn on a farm. 
Surviving the Holocaust, he lost every single relative in both his immediate and extended family. And yet, having witnessed the insanity of fascism during this conflagration, he deeply valued his heritage. Having lived through a nightmare born of the unassailable dogma advanced by Hitler, and then narrowly escaping the net of the Soviet Union, my father valued independent thinking and unfettered, open, and critical analysis. It is for this reason I feel privileged to be able to associate and commemorate my father's Yorzeit with tonight's program. Tonight's unprecedented event is reflective of the kind of an innovative and unique programming created by Torah in Motion. Torah in Motion has brought together two of the greatest minds and personalities in their respective religious realms, Rabbi Sachs and Professor Taylor, with their diverse religious perspectives to discuss the relevancy of religion and the challenges to religion in a secular world. In a world where earlier mysteries are cogently explained by advances in science and individual autonomy and limited outside authority are the sensibilities of the day. Dr. Naylor will have the distinction of introducing Rabbi Sachs and Professor Taylor to you. Dr. Naylor is a force in his own right. Dr. Naylor was appointed in 2005 as the 15th president of the University of Toronto. He is a Rhodes Scholar and has co-authored numerous publications. He is as well internationally recognized as a leader in the field of health services research and evidence-based health and social policy. Between 1999 and 2005, Dr. Naylor was Dean of Medicine at the University of Toronto. Dr. Naylor has received multiple national and international awards for research and academic leadership, and as well as an officer of the Order of Canada. Please welcome Dr. Professor David Naylor. Thank you very much, Mr. Krauss, and thank you especially for your sponsorship of this event. And it is wonderful to see such a fine turnout. I want to welcome everyone to the Isabel Batter Theatre here on the university's historic downtown campus. And to say that I'm particularly delighted that our hosts, Hillel of Greater Toronto and Torah in Motion, have joined Mr. Krauss in sponsoring and welcoming so many of our students to tonight's special event. That is a generous and compelling gesture on any university campus and very meaningful. I also want to acknowledge the university's Department of Political Science and Multi-Base Centre for their support and their organizational input. And say at the outset that there are hundreds of events booked by a variety of groups on all three of our campuses. You can imagine that if the president went to every one of them, there would need to be three or four of us. And my decision to be here tonight reflects the fact that this is a very special event. It's unusual in several respects. It's unusual in that we have students sponsored and welcomed so generously, but it's also unusual because we do not often have, even on this wonderful campus, individuals of the stature of our guest, Charles Taylor, one of the great public intellectuals and philosophers of our time, a leader at McGill University. He has crossed over to Oxford and been an inspirational figure there, and has thought and reflected deeply on multi-faith issues. And as for Lord Jonathan Sachs, 
one need hardly say more than an individual who is the chief rabbi of Great Britain is a unique and very welcome guest on our campus. Lord Sachs, thank you for joining us. Now, Elliot Malamut may say a little bit more about our special guest, but I want to say a word about Professor Malamut, Professor of Humanities at York, a great sister institution. And if I may be forgiven for so doing, Elliot, he has a PhD from the University of Toronto, and we take great pride in that, too. <laughs> now, a word about something else that brought me here tonight, and that is the focus of this event and Torah in Motion's mission. These are turbulent times. To ten tensions between, among, within faiths and cultures and peoples spill across borders and reverberate around this hot and crowded and shrinking planet. In numerous instances, faith itself has become a flashpoint, a point of divisiveness and separation. And yet many, like this evening's remarkable speakers, continue to nurture and advance the hope that religion can be a unifying force, that we can be brought together by our shared spirituality. In this context, I have to say a university setting for a dialogue like the one tonight is particularly fitting. Some 70 different student faith communities representing eight world religions call this secular public university their home. We are something of a living laboratory for the roles of internationalism or multiculturalism and faith in civil society is a cradle for those cross currents. And you can only imagine some of the conversations and indeed difficult debates that take place in our dormitories, our common rooms, our classes, and yes, many of our public spaces. I fully expect this evening's conversation between Professor Taylor and Rabbi Sachs will be absolutely exemplary. A spirited search for commonality and a glimpse at a future in which religion and faith serve as both an expanding force in terms of our generosity of spirit and a uniting force for humanity in its quest for the betterment of our shared condition. So to that end, I want to close again by thanking this evening's sponsors, not least Larry Krause on this very special evening for him and his family, welcoming our friends from Hill of Greater Toronto back to the university and extending a warm welcome once again to our students, to all the guests in the audience, and of course, our special speakers and our moderator. I wish everyone a wonderful evening of dialogue. Thank you for being here. Good evening. My name is Dr. Elliot Malamut. On behalf of Tour in Motion, it's my pleasure to host tonight's program. The question of the viability of religion and religious practice in a secular age is not a new question. From Nietzsche's madman running around the marketplace proclaiming the death of God to the more practical phenomenon of declining religious participation in certain sectors of Judaism and Christianity, the fundamental issue of what place religion finds for itself in the modern and postmodern world has been often debated and much discussed. Lately, there are new voices that have vehemently asserted not just religion's irrelevance and wrongheadedness, but its malevolence and corruption. Books like Sam Harris's The End of Faith and Letter to a Christian Nation, Daniel Dennett's Breaking the Spell, Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion, and of course Christopher Hitchens' God is Not Great have found large readerships and enthusiastic followings. So tonight, 
I would like to explore in conversation with two of the most thoughtful expositors of religion in the world today. The question of how religion functions in an age of autonomy, fragmented communities, and framed traditions. Before I introduce our speakers, I would like to second what President Naylor said, to thank the staff of Hillel, the University of Toronto, specifically Zach Kay and Aaron Katchen, and also Richard Chambers of the Multi-Faith Centre for their help and support in facilitating this event. <laughs> to my left, Jonathan Sachs is probably the most articulate spokesperson for Judaism in the world today. He has been Chief Rabbi of the United Hebrew Congregations of the Commonwealth since September 1991, the sixth incumbent since the role was formalized in 1845. Prior to taking up his current post, Rabbi Sachs was the rabbi of Golders Green and Marble Arch Synagogues. He was educated at Cambridge, where he obtained first-class honors in philosophy. He pursued postgraduate studies at New College Oxford and King's College London, gaining his PhD in 1981 and rabbinic ordination from Jews College in Yeshiva Yitzchayim. The chief rabbi has been a visiting professor at several universities in Britain, the US, and Israel. He's currently a visiting professor at Oxford. He holds many honorary degrees, including a Doctor of Divinity, conferred to mark his first 10 years in office by the Archbishop of Canterbury. The chief rabbi received the Jerusalem Prize in 1995 for his contribution to diaspora Jewish life. He was knighted by Her Majesty the Queen in 2005 and made a life peer. He took his seat in the House of Lords on 27 October 2009, where he sits on the cross benches as Baron Sachs of Altgate in the City of London. The Chief Rabbi is a frequent contributor to radio, television, and the national press. He regularly delivers the BBC Radio 4's Thought for the Day and broadcasts an annual Rosh Hashanah message on BBC Two. He has written 24 books, the Dignity of Difference was awarded the 2004 Graymeyer Prize for Religion and a Letter in the Scroll, the National Jewish Book Award for 2000. His latest books include Future Tense and The Great Partnership. Please welcome Chief Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. One of the most important thinkers that Canada has ever produced, Professor Charles Taylor is that rare philosopher who attempts to put his ideas into practice. His writings have been translated into 20 languages. He has covered a range of subjects that include artificial intelligence, language, social behavior, morality, and multiculturalism. He was a pupil of Isaiah Berlin at Oxford. Professor Taylor taught at McGill from 1961 to 1997, where he is now a professor emeritus. A public intellectual, Professor Taylor never hesitated to make his ideas known. He ran in three federal elections. We won't tell you how it turned out. <laughs> Most famously against Pierre Trudeau in 1965. His books have achieved a wide general readership, including Sources of the Self, The Malays of Modernity, and A Secular Age. In 2003, Professor Taylor was awarded the first Social Science and Humanities Research Council Gold Medal. In 2007, he was again in the public eye for three separate accomplishments. He received the prestigious Templeton Prize for progress toward research or discoveries about spiritual realities, which is the world's largest annual monetary award for an individual. 
He joined forces with sociologist Gérard Bouchard to chair the high-profile consultation commission on accommodation practices related to cultural differences, the Quebec government's response to a string of controversies surrounding the reasonable accommodation of religious groups. And of course, he published The Secular Age, a study of the changing place of religion in our societies, which the New York Times hailed as a work of stupendous breadth and erudition. In November 2008, Professor Taylor became the first Canadian to win Japan's Kyoto Prize for Arts and Philosophy, an achievement marked by a 10-day lecture tour of Japan. He's also a member of the Order of Canada. Please welcome Professor Charles Taylor. Gentlemen, I'm going to begin our conversation tonight by approaching matters from the perspective of religious education, which is where I live. Perhaps the primary fact in much religious education today is that many of the people that we teach of all stripes are so thoroughly immersed in the modern world and have absorbed so many of its presuppositions from the autonomy of choice to the diversity of truth that we don't always reflect sufficiently on what effect this has on their ability to live a sacred life. In 1918, Max Weber writes that the fate of our times is characterized by, above all, the disenchantment of the world. And by that he means the knowledge or belief that there are no mysterious, incalculable forces that come into play, but that one can in principle master all things by calculation. I wanted to ask you, and we'll begin with you, Chief Rabbi, if the attitude of disenchantment is all pervasive, and I want you to um, discuss whether you think it is or not. If it is all pervasive in much of the modern world, then can traditional religion truly survive without becoming either incredibly insular, almost a world apart? And if the price to be paid for religion survival is this hermetically sealed world, is that too big a price to pay? Ah, right. Um, <laughs> Elliot, uh, can I first of all begin just by adding my thanks to... Uh, David Naylor to the University of Toronto, or am I supposed to say Toronto? I'm not sure. Um, this for me is, uh, it's the first time I've been in the university and it's a very moving moment for me, if I may explain why. Uh, my own rabbi, uh, Rabbi Nachum Rabinovich, uh, who taught me for 12 years and from whom I succeeded as head of our rabbinical training seminary, was a rabbi here in Toronto, in Clanton Park, and a professor of the University of Toronto in mathematics and probability theory. So it was from this great Jewish community and this great university that I learned every day for 12 years that these two worlds belong together rather than in opposition to one another. And uh, that's my opening statement. My second thing is that this evening allows me to do a little mitzvah, a little religious act, because, um, as many in the audience will know, 2,000 years ago is a gesture of, I think, great generosity of spirit. The rabbis coined a blessing on seeing a great scholar of any faith or none. And in the presence of Charles Taylor, one of the Gedolei Hador, if I may explain, uh, one of the giants of our generation, from whom... I personally have learned so much. And I have the privilege of saying, Baruch Shenatan Adam. We thank God for giving of his wisdom to flesh and blood and to you. Thank you, Charles.
it is a measure of, uh, no one has written more, more uh, subtly uh, of the many meanings of the word secularization than Charles himself in Sources of the Self in a Secular Age. But it is a measure of our confusion that we forget the most fundamental point of Max Weber and the demythologizing or disenchantment of the world. According to Max Weber, the roots of Western rationality of disenchantment are in Genesis chapter 1. The, in the beginning God created. The Genesis 1 account of creation is a polemic against myth. Myth was a kind of proto-science that tried to explain how things came to be and very often did so in terms of stories about clashes between the gods. Judaism by this simple litany of and God said let there be and there was and God saw that it was good was according to Max Weber the opening up of the possibility of science that ancient Israel and of course ancient Greece were the first cultures to break with myth. So in a certain sense Genesis 1 secularizes or makes possible the secularization of knowledge by predicating the absolute transcendence of God. God isn't part of nature, therefore we can understand nature, and especially when God creates us in his image, and Rashi explains that means with the capacity to understand and discern, uh, that is a divine given gift, the basis of which is, number one, that God wants us to know, as against the myth of Prometheus, uh, where man had to, the gods had to, man had to steal knowledge from the gods. Uh, secondly, the entire universe is the result of a single rational creative will and therefore amenable to human understanding, not the play of mysterious and capricious elements. And therefore, Judaism began life, as it were, as an act of secularization of knowledge. The next thing that happens in Judaism, no less important, is its polemic against a sacral kingship. You know, the city-state the kings of Mesopotamian city-states, and above all the pharaohs of Egypt, were either demigods or the children of gods or the chief interlocutor with the gods. They were religious heads as well. So Judaism secularizes knowledge and it secularizes power. And therefore we can live with a world in which knowledge is secular and power is secularized because religion belongs in another dimension of life altogether. And if I can give the paradox, here it is. Look at where we are right now in the evolution of human civilization to explain the world. We don't need <coughs> revelation, we have science. To control it, we don't need uh, uh, oracles and, and magic, we have technology. To uh, control power, we don't need the prophets, we have elections, even if sometimes, Charles, they go the wrong way. Uh, <laughs> And, oh my goodness, Canada missed its chance of a philosopher king, Charles. <laughs> you know, if we're ill, we don't go to a priest, we go to a doctor. If we're depressed, we don't need the book of Psalms, we can take a pill. And if we are in search of salvation, we can go to the modern cathedrals of the consumer age, namely shopping centers. So... In functional terms, everything religion used to do is now done by something else. And yet still people believe. And I don't know if they believe in Canada. In England they gave up believing a long time ago. And 
Even I am sometimes have trials for faith in my own soccer team. But um, <laughs> the fact is that religion is alive and well in many parts of the world, according to Robert Putnam in American Grace, according to the editor of The Economist, John Micklethwaite, in his 2009 book, God is Back, there are more people that attend a church regular, weekly, in the United States than in the theocratic state of Iran. Did you know that? 40% of Americans go to a house of worship every week. Only 39% of Iranians go. And even more remarkable, in, a, uh, in, a, in an area where Chairman Mao, 50 years ago, declared China a religion-free zone, there are now more people in church once a week than there are members of the Communist Party. So the 21st century is going to be a more religious century than the 20th was, and religion is surprisingly still alive and well. Why is that? It is because the four great institutions of the modern age, science, technology, liberal democratic politics, and the market economy, cannot answer the three fundamental questions that every reflective human being will ask. Number one, who am I? Number two, why am I here? Number three, how then shall I live? Human beings are meaning-seeking animals, and the search for meaning is constitutive of our humanity, and religion is the greatest heritage of our meanings. Therefore, I don't believe that we have to hide ourselves away in sectarian forms of religious uh, organization, either segregated from the world or sometimes in the case of angry fundamentalists in an adversarial stance towards the world, I believe we can be in the world with confidence that faith still has a role to play in society and in what it means to be human. Uh, Professor Taylor, I just want to spin it a little bit for you. When, when you're talking about secularization in your book, you're not just talking about how many people go to church and how many don't. You're talking about a kind of internalization of an attitude, I think you talk about the buffered self, where even people who purport to be religious do not seem to have the same mindset in the 2000s as they did 500 years ago in terms of thinking about things like demons, fairies, the soul, the afterlife. I wonder if you could talk about that a bit for our audience. I think this is very important, but I want to say first how moved I am what John said earlier about myself. If I have wisdom, it's because I've talked to a lot of people who've changed. And one of them has been very much Jonathan Sachs here that I've learned a great deal from. But to get back to your question, yes, Weber, I'd never accuse him of sloppy thinking, but, I, but he did make a kind of slip here, and it reflects something very ambivalent of Weber. You see, the word disenchantment originally meant the demagification. That's what the word means in German, and Sabo, right? So he was talking about exactly what Jonathan was talking about. You know, Saul is condemned for consulting the witch of Endor. That is what, and that move has come from the Hebrew Bible through Christianity and through Islam. That kind of demagification of the world. Then he slips in this famous phrase from science as a vocation to talk about uh, there are mysterious and calculable forces, and everything is done by calculation. He, you know, he, did he really believe this? I don't think so, because in the, lots of other parts of his work, he talks about a universe in which everything is done by calculation as an iron cage. So <clears throat> he's very, very ambivalent about this. But obviously, these two are very different things. You get rid of magic. Does that mean that you 
no longer believe in the power of prayer and getting close to God and giving you a power to do things you couldn't do otherwise. It doesn't follow at all. But when people run these two together, it sounds as though it ought to follow. What we're really living in is an age, in, our, in the West, not everywhere, but is an age in which, roughly speaking, magic has a much lesser place. And people are even inured to it, maybe insensitive to some things that are going on there. But in this world, the great issues arise, as Jonathan said, the great issues arise again, and the various messages that come from the religious communities can answer them, can speak to them. I think that the, the three questions you pose are sort of existential questions, but the question is, if you take away the, the fundamental belief in magic, let's say, so let's play devil's advocate for a second. My secular students will say things like, mainstream propositions of religion are magic. We're not talking about demons and fear. It's just the idea of getting up and, and praying to an invisible being is irrational. It's magical. I'll have nothing to do with it. The idea that God cares about me, rewards and punishes me, that's magical. I'll have nothing to do with it. So in a way, what I'm asking is how can you split off? How can a person have a normative religious life if the culture's consciousness is that we've gotten rid of these elements that were the very core of what belief meant? Yeah, well, that's because they're confusing magic with something different. I mean, say we don't believe in magic, it's not that we don't believe in God. It's not the contrary. We don't believe that there's some kind of automatic way by doing a certain ritual, you know, I want to get rid of you, I make a little uh, image and put a, put a pin in it. When we relate to God, that's not, well, we sometimes ask God, help me to pass the exams. <laughs> and that kind of prayer, I think, is a very important part of spiritual life. But the real point is getting close to God and we become finer, better, fuller, people in doing this. But if that's magic, then any kind of moral growth <laughs> is, is magic. And of course, if you use the word that sloppily, then, then all distinctions go. But if you, you know, if you see very clearly what the narrow meaning of uh, disenchantment, then clearly that doesn't touch a whole lot of religions in the world that are not basically, is the message of the Buddha based on magic? Is it, no, clearly not. Right. I mean, yeah. um, Charles is absolutely right. And the, uh, you know, and that's, I think, why we both engage in philosophy against, as our uh, immune system against what Wittgenstein called the bewitchment of intelligence by means of language. Um, the truth is that the Torah in, uh, you know, in Parashat uh, Shoftim in the middle of Deuteronomy absolutely forbids magic of all kinds. Uh, consulting the dead, soothsaying, and all this kind of thing, and uh, absolutely opposed to it. Secondly, um, the Hebrew word for to pray, lehit paleo, actually means to judge yourself. And actually prayer has more to do with um, openness to otherness than some magical way of bringing about a certain result. And, uh, you know, as, as the old uh, joke puts it, you know, uh, 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 Goldberg, who's been faithfully to synagogue every day for 50 years, suddenly doesn't turn up for several weeks, and the rabbi goes to see him, and he says, Goldberg, what's the matter? You always came to synagogue. You always prayed. He said, for 50 years I prayed. And once, once in my life I asked God one thing. I said, God... Let me win the lottery. I need 50 million pounds. And he 
didn't answer my prayer, so I'm not going to pray anymore. And the rabbi said, Goldberg, God did answer your prayer. It's just that the answer was no. (laughs) I believe we are transformed by prayer in a way that uh, Iris Murdoch said so beautifully. I mentioned this to Charles earlier in NYU a couple of days ago. Iris Murdoch has this wonderful passage in her book, The Sovereignty of Good, where she's talking about someone, you know, you're, you're in a state, you're feeling very low, very sorry for yourself, and you look out of the window, and suddenly your attention is caught by a kestrel, and you're absolutely entranced by the beauty and power of this bird. And all of a sudden you forget yourself completely. Me, it becomes nothing, and it's all kestrel. And uh, Iris Murdoch called this unselfing. And that was part of her theory of sort of platonic theory of good as a way of, you know, unselfing and seeing what's really there. And there's no doubt that I responded to that, resonated to that as a Jew, because actually I think that is what prayer is. It is a sustained act of unselfing. And our, our daily prayers begin with this long list of blessings to God for giving us back our life today, for you know, for the air we breathe, for, for the ground we tread on, and so on. All of which is opening our eyes to wonder. And I think that's the power of prayer. It's got nothing to do with magic. I just wonder if this isn't a very modern, contemporary way of, of speaking about the matter. Let's assume that what you've said is 100% accurate. Would Jews and Christians throughout history have thought of their prayer experience as opening myself to wonder? Perhaps they did. Uh, Moses Maimonides says exactly that. And there was no one more opposed to magic than Maimonides. Right. As a a rationalist, he would see it in that way. But I'm wondering if most Jews and Christians throughout history actually felt a little bit like Goldberg. In other words, I'm praying, I expect an answer. I'm just wondering, what I'm getting at is, is there a certain modern disappointment with the idea of that I'm going to ask and I won't get answered, that then gets converted into different reasons for doing religion. I'm going to grow, I'm going to unself, you know, etc. Well, I think you see that it's both very old and relatively new. It's very old in the sense that Jonathan was saying that the really wise people in both our religious traditions going way back would have responded in the same way. But there was, in the, in the pews or in the general life of the synagogue, lots of people who were doing lots of things on the side, even though they weren't entirely considered kosher, which we can think of in terms of the world of, of magic. That was certainly the case of medieval Christianity. I mean, there was all this fear of the spirits of the woods and beating the bounds of the parish, and that was an important part of parish life. <clears throat> so we're in a new epoch in which, if you like, religion, which was rather closely linked with magic, in many cases, is being detached from it. But what this is, is not a totally new situation. It's, got, it's a liberating a possibility that was formerly perhaps more a minority than a majority choice, and making it the center of our religious lives. I think that is the really spectacular change. If you look over the 500 years, that's come. But I, I, you know, I, I, I don't want us to think that this is a modern take exclusively. There's an extraordinary passage in the Babylonian Talmud, and we're going here back to the 4th, 5th century, 
which tells the following story that uh, a certain man whose wife had become pregnant died in childbirth and this was a very poor man who was not able to uh, afford a nursing mother. And the Talmud says a miracle happened and his own breath gave milk and he was able to nurse the child. Now actually medically uh, that is not a magical phenomenon. Male lactation is a it's a rare phenomenon, but it's not a supernatural one. And there's a very interesting argument in, in the Talmud. One rabbi says, see how great this man was, that a miracle was done for him. And the other says, no, see how lowly was this man, that he needed a miracle in the first place. So you have that and opposition to uh, uh, dependence on the supernatural. And that is not merely in a uh, non-legal passage. There is a legal principle in Judaism, Ein Samchin al we do not rely on miracles. We're making calculations, those must be done on a rational base. But the locus, locus classicus here is Isaiah chapter 1, so we're going back to 7th, 8th century before the Christian era. That powerful vision of chapter 1 in which God says, you know, if you fail to execute social justice and care for the widow and the orphan and you you know, you, you take bribes as a politician, all the rest of it. God says, who asked you to come trampling on my courts? The more you pray, the less I will listen. In other words, Isaiah was saying, don't believe you can see prayer as some magical way of achieving a result. Uh, a, a successful society is one built on perfectly rational, ethical principles. And God is not your shortcut that allows you to bypass the ethical and hence also in that broad sense the rational. Related to this, I wanted to uh, bring a quote from Peter Berger. When he writes in A Far Glory, which is a book he published about 20 years ago, and it was a very, I remember when I first read it, it really struck me, uh, even though he was talking about the Protestant experience. He says that he believes there's a kind of surrender, that's the word he uses, that takes place on the part of many um, contemporary Christian theologians. Um, and it could apply to Judaism as well. And what he talks about is when certain things are substituted for traditional religion. Uh, the substitutes, he says, are things like the alleged ethics of Jesus, or some sort of existential experience, or mental health with a spiritual component, or Christianity as a political agenda. And all of these he sees as substitutions, and hence he sees them as a kind of suicide. In other words, when religion is used to do the things that other domains can do, that people can discover that they can do all of these things without religion. They can be ethical without Jesus, and they can be existentially authentic and healthy without religion, etc. So he seems to be arguing that the people who communicate religion today, perhaps except in the most orthodox circles, feel that the message of traditional religion, that's why I was interested, Chief Rabbi, when you were talking about um, opening oneself, that there seems to be a replacement of the old words, God, sacrifice, obligation, sin, reward, punishment. And in fact, in many places in the Jewish world, and I assume it's this way in the Christian world as well, there's a new kind of language, religion as self-growth, or meditative practice, or what you speak about in your book, authenticity. So I'm wondering if you think that the way we talk about religion today reflects, you said it was liberating, but I'm wondering if it's also a certain defensiveness. 
um, as though religion is a bit embarrassed about the old words. And so to engage people in the modern world, we try and open up religion's potential in a spiritual sense, which is a good thing. But I'm wondering if it's also an avoidance of the old stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, what you have here in these various things that you mentioned, like self-growth and so on, is an abandonment of what, in both Judaism and Christianity, you could mention Buddhism, you could mention many other religions, is the possibility of a much profounder change <laughs> in human beings. I mean, let's speak in terms of our, you know, of our two religions here, though we'd have to phrase it differently if we're speaking of others, but that in, in contact with God, one can have a much profounder transformation which can't be captured, by things like self-growth, because one of the things that's involved is unselfing, is going beyond the self. Right? And <clears throat> so it's possible to react to the modern world by saying, well, those kinds of more far-reaching transformations, forget them. We can have a perfectly happy life down here with these much lesser modes, which we can calculate different right. ways of, you know, this kind of particular kind of meditation will make you happier and so on. Right? And that's certainly a very important trend in the modern world. And sometimes religious communities can uh, in a little certain way cave into that trend. But it can't really suffice in the end because for some people it might, but for many, many people the sense that there's something more brings them back again to the Bible. To, you know. Is it a shrinking? Are we, are we shrinking religion a little bit? It's a sellout. It's an absolute sellout. I mean, religion is more than canonizing the status quo. Yeah. And uh, you know, um, real, in, in fact, it's a kind of idolatry. Idolatry means making God in our image instead of allowing him to remake us in his. And it always struck me as a pretty ridiculous strategy. You know, you know those early Woody Allen films, you know, neurotic Jewish Brooklyn kid meets suave, sophisticated, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant girlfriend. I can't remember whether this was the Diane Keaton phase or the other phase, whatever it was. And they're kind of talking and, you know, he's saying to her, what was the biggest sin when you were a child, you know? And she says something like, whatever it is, uh, speaking while you're eating or something. And she says to him, and what was the biggest sin when you were a child? And he says, buying retail. <laughs> you know, um, Jews cut out the middle man. So... Um, if the synagogue delivers for me something that the secular society delivers cleaner and better, I'm going to cut out the metal man and go straight to the secular society. So don't try and do that with Jews. I remember uh, for the last 10 years or 15 years, I've launched something. It's a mainly Christian thing, but it's a lot of charity, some secular, called National Marriage Week. And the first time we did this in, uh, in Britain, you know, marriage is a pretty bad state. Um, 46% of children in Britain now are born outside of marriage. So marriage is really in disarray. And so when I opened this National Marriage Week for the first time, a journalist came up to me and said, isn't that terribly politically incorrect, Chief <laughs> Rabbi? And I said, of course it is. If it weren't, what would be the point of our saying it? You know, religion is there as a counter voice. It is a challenge to the norms of society and it's a way of saying look up search for a more expansive horizon you know that uh, 
it's very interesting you're talking about self, authenticity, happiness. Um, the first time, back in 1968, as a second year undergraduate, I met uh, the late Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, um, uh, the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And just before I went in, some of the Hasidim told me the following story. A very touching story. Before he became the Rebbe, the, Rabbi Schneerson ran the Chabad publishing house. So he was very familiar with the use of typographical symbols. And occasionally this allowed him to deliver a message very economically. And somebody had written to him, I seek the Rebbe's advice, I need the Rebbe's help, I'm very depressed, I find I have no reason to live, I pray and nothing happens, I uh, fulfill the commands and I am unmoved by them, I need the Rebbe's help. And the Rebbe gave him the most brilliant answer without using a single word. He simply ringed the first word of every sentence. And that word was I. If you're looking for happiness... Happiness lies in that which is not me. Or as Kierkegaard used to say, Viktor Frankl used to say this often in his name, the door to happiness opens outward. Now we are living in the big I generation of all time. Our new revelation was brought down the mountain by the late Steve Jobs, holding in his hand the two tablets. (laughs) iPad 1 and iPad 2. And so we'd have the iPad, the iPhone, the iPod, the iTunes, everything's I, I, I. And it is not surprising that we are more affluent than previous generations and more prone to depressive and stress-related syndromes. And religion is about moving beyond the I. I call religion the redemption of solitude. And that is a direct challenge to the individualism of contemporary culture. So both of you seem to be suggesting that religion can be something more. Let's go back to a phrase you just used. Now, when you use religion for self-growth in a way, you're missing a little bit of an opportunity, and you talked about closer contact with God. Maybe you can expand on why you think one, if not negates, kind of mutes the other. And also, what do you mean by closer contact with God? Well, that's, I mean, the latter is very hard to say. But certainly, what's the more I'm talking about here? Well, all right, I have to speak from out of my own tradition. Here's where we, we have yeah, to do, do this in order to so make bridges across. Well, there is, I get a sense from many places, from the life of the saints, for instance, of a kind of potentiality to give self in love, which is really awe-inspiring, which I'm just miles beyond what I am and what a lot of people around me are day to day. So I can have two attitudes. I can say that's totally impossible. It can't really be. And maybe it's some kind of totally neurotic uh, <laughs> twist which makes that person look like that. I'm just going to go with the ordinary uh, aims, of, aims that we all have in life. Or I can be profoundly moved by that and think, yes, there's something here. But it's, that kind of transformation can only come if I see, oh, I forget that I'm <laughs> looking for a transformation. If I drawn to beyond myself in that way. And then you find yourself a path. Now for me that path includes prayer. Includes being in contact in some way with God. With the mind of God. With the heart of God. And in, in your own life, in your own practice have you found when it is or why it is that you would feel more drawn, less self-conscious about 
thinking of it as neurotic and more drawn to it, and when you seem more blocked? Yes, I mean, definitely, I don't fully understand this, because sometimes you feel very blocked, and a lot of the time, uh, you know, you think, maybe I'm, I'm a super neurotic, and, and uh, this is such a, you know, a, 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 you don't have a sense of that, and a sense that you get discouraged by your, uh, by your path. And, you know, like this... Uh, I understand this Goldberg, not because God didn't get him to win the, uh, the lottery, but because you can pray and pray and very often feel just dead, there's no, there's no contact. And you look at the lives of some of the saints, like Teresa Avila and so on, and you can see the same kind of thing happening. So, yeah, you get very discouraged. What makes you hang in there? I don't know. It's a hunger which grows. And you think this is a real human possibility. You see the world around you desperately needing that. Because when occasional person comes in with that kind of openness and can step beyond themselves, you know, and it doesn't have to be uh, another Christian or Catholic, something like Mandela. I mean, I'm just constantly astonished. If I'd spent 27 years in Robben Island, I would come out of there saying, "Get those guys!" And he comes up saying, "Let's make a new society together where we can hold the hand up and touch the other." So I'm just completely in awe of that. And I can see that in certain circumstances, it can transform what ought to have been the biggest bloodbath in, in, practically in the history of, of, uh, of the world into, anyway, the, certain problems, the creation of a new new society. And then my faith is renewed. <laughs> but it's a constant, it's a certain a constant struggle. And if you set your sights that high, then you're open to the issue of how can I get there? You know, what is the role of God? Um, I wanted to uh, return to something I mentioned off the top, which is the sort of attacks or challenges to religion that we encounter today. Um, what was called the school of the new atheists. They attack religion with a great deal of flourish. Um, they see it as the province of irrationality, even fanaticism. And they're very popular. And for believers, it's somewhat frustrating as some of their writing seems to somewhat stereotype religious practice. I'm wondering why you think, both of you can weigh in on this, why you think that this kind of writing has become so popular now, to deride religion as negative, simple-minded, destructive? Um, is it because they've only focused on certain aspects of religion? Or do they have a case? Um. Other than Yiddish, I think Oxford comes up with the best insults. <laughs> and therefore, I, if I may use an Oxford way of describing the new atheists, I would say, on the surface, they're profound. <laughs> but deep down, they're superficial. There is nothing in the writings of the New Atheists that was not said better uh, by Hume, by Kant, and with infinitely more eloquence by Bertrand Russell. So the, the, my sense of deja vu is absolutely overwhelming. Uh, why it's happened now, I think, was best explained by the late Leo Strauss, whom I never knew, in a little book he wrote called Philosophy and Law, who pointed out that uh, when the, uh, you know, the philosophe, 
announced the death of religion, and religion didn't die, and they produced every conceivable reason why it wasn't true, and people were simply unmoved by this, they resorted to the last weapon of desperation, which is ridicule, which is in effect what many of these uh, writers do. Number one, like this stuff about magic, they fail to observe the elementary rule of anthropology and sociology, which is to distinguish folk religion from normative religion. I mean, all, all religions have a folk penumbra, you know, which include practices which are frowned on by the mainstream, but nonetheless happen. Number two, they lump together polemics against myth in the Bible with myth as well. I mean, Richard Dawkins in his new book, uh, The Magic of Creation, which in, in many other respects, super book. I mean, it's a, a deeply, it's a book filled with awe. But, you know, he takes uh, Genesis uh, 8, uh, God's covenant with Noah, symbolized by the rainbow, as a kind of quasi-scientific explanation of why they're rainbows. <laughs> uh, and, and that's just potty. I mean, that's ridiculous. And uh, for that, you go to Oxford. But then, you know, I, it, it amazes me. So I think they're very angry that having been declared uh, brain-dead, in the 18th century, here is the corpse still walking and talking and breathing and smiling, um, and they feel they have to laugh it out of existence. Uh, but on the other hand, um, there is a dimension there in their case, which is real and which I acknowledge in my book, The Great Partnership, which is we are seeing the return of some very, very dangerous forms of religiosity. Uh, you know, on uh, a, a religionization of politics, you know, and in certain radical religious circles. And religion and politics do not mix. Um, when you religionize a conflict, you render it incapable of solution. Because what in politics is a high virtue in religion is the greatest vice, namely compromise. So, in order to reach a political solution, you have to be able to compromise, and that means you have to make a principled separation of religion from power. And uh, some of the religion that has emerged in the 21st century is very dangerous, very scary, and on this, I would stand side by side with the new atheists in terms of my own faith. Um, Judaism and Christianity both went through bitter internal struggles before they finally learnt to relinquish power. In the first century, the Jewish forces inside Jerusalem, as Josephus makes terrifyingly clear, were more bent on killing one another than on fighting the enemy outside. And Judaism, within the next two centuries, reached a stage where a third century sage couldn't even understand that when King David in the book of Psalms refers to a sword. He means a sword. You know, gird your sword upon your loins. That obviously means to a third century sage, make sure you have a lot of learning to defend yourself with. And somebody comes along and says, when the line says a sword, it means a sword. And he says, oh really? I never knew that. I love the whole of Shaz, I never knew that before. So um, Judaism 
went through that bitter internal struggle. Christianity went through it in the 16th and 17th centuries when Europe, the face of Europe was scarred uh, by religious wars in the wake of the Reformation, leading to the secularization of power in the 17th century. So um, the new atheists, if they are referring to a dangerous development in the world, then I think they're right and I have to stand with them on that. No, I entirely agree with you. I'd just like to add two little side um, comments. One is, why are they so angry? Well, I think it's rather like Victorian bishops faced with Darwinism, and strangely enough, ironically enough. Why? Well, you see in the 19th century among many Christian churches the idea that Christianity is in the strongest civilization in the world, it informs it, it's going higher and higher, it will produce more and more good, everybody will become this kind of triumphalist picture of history. And then along comes this torpedo. <laughs> and the same situation here. For 50 years after the Second World War, a lot of secular intellectual thought, religion's disappearing, it's all getting better, it's all going away, and suddenly it comes back. And the kind of anger at having your whole expectation of history sidelined. The second thing I'd like to say is maybe what makes everybody read those books isn't the same as what makes the authors write those books. There is such a thing as a succès de scandale. I mean, people like to see what has previously been seen as highly respectable figures and institutions taken down a peg. There's a very good Canadian author you might not know very well, Nancy Houston, because she writes in French. She's gone to France and she writes in French. She wrote this brilliant book, and I've forgotten the title of it, about postmodern philosophy and how there's a deep gloom in these, many of these philosophies. There's no truth, there's no justice, there's no future for human beings. And people come and see plays like that and they laugh them off. But in their lives, they aren't operating on the principle right. that there's no truth. But there's something fascinating about this. You see this going on, this kind of drama going on. I think that will account for a large part of the readership because these books sell very well. It doesn't mean at all that the, all the buyers and readers are actually buying the argument. Right, so you're saying that in their own lives they wouldn't necessarily tend towards a nihilistic yeah. bent, but th th they engage with it on, on another level. I think there's, there's, a, there's a fascinating comment I ran across to turn atheism another way by one of the central Jewish thinkers of the 20th century. is a man named Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook. And Rabbi Cook was the first chief rabbi of Mandate Palestine. He was a fascinating figure. He was a mystic. He was a remarkable figure. And he wrote an essay called The Pangs of Cleansing. And in the essay, he writes that God's being, as conceived by the multitude and even by individuals who would be their leaders, is that of a ruthless power from whom there's no escape and to whom we must necessarily be subservient. The tendency to see the divine essence as embodied in words and in letters alone is a source of embarrassment to humanity. And atheism arises as a pained outcry to liberate man from this narrow and alien pit, to raise him from the darkness of focusing on letters and words alone, to place his primary focus on the realm of morals. So it seems like that for Rabbi Cook, he sees atheism as a way of keeping religion honest and critiquing it when it descends into this kind of numbing dogma and this coercive fundamentalism. That, in turn, would suggest that we're better off not to draw these sharp dichotomies between what we call religious and what we call secular. 
I wonder if you could both reflect on the relationship between so-called religious communities and so-called mm -hmm. secular ones. Yeah. I think there are lots of different kinds of atheists, but I would uh, in particular distinguish two. Uh, one I, um, one uh, was nicely defined for me by the late Sir Isaiah Berlin, um, with whom I became quite close towards the end of his life. And uh, the first time he came to our house, he said, Chief Rabbi, whatever you do, don't talk to me about religion. When it comes to God, I'm tone deaf. And then he said, what I don't understand is how you studied philosophy at Cambridge and Oxford. How is it that you believe? And I said, Sir Isaiah, if it helps, think of me as a lapsed heretic. <laughs> quite understand it, boy, quite understand. So um, there is the kind of atheist um, with whom I've had dialogues. Um, I had a dialogue two weeks ago on the BBC, quite a long one, with Richard Dawkins. And that's how I understand Richard Dawkins. He's tone deaf to some of the regis, not all, he has a sense of awe in the presence of nature and the vastness of the universe. But in other respects, he's tone deaf. And he said, absolutely right, I am tone deaf, you know, which was an interesting admission on his part. So they're the tone deaf atheists. And then there's the other kind of atheists who really have soul and who really see um, the failings of the embodiment of religion at any given moment. And I make it my principle to have open dialogue with those atheists, and I have them all the time in, in Britain and, and in Israel. I'm thinking here of real prophetic figures who are complete atheists, very anti-religious, like the Israeli novelists Amos Oz, David Grossman, Alabek Yoshua, with all of whom I have a close friendship I'm thinking of interesting intellectuals with whom I've had dialogues like Steven Pinker, like George Steiner, like, uh, I don't know whether he's been to Canada, our Booker Prize winning novelist Howard Jacobson, uh, Alain de Botton, and so on, Lisa Jardine, a lot of these people. And these are really people from whom I learn an enormous amount, just as I learned from uh, my own doctoral supervisor, who was a, a lapsed Catholic and a very committed atheist, the late Sir Bernard Williams. And one learns an enormous amount from these people. And they do have soul. They might deny it, but they have what I call soul. And when you are in conversation with such people, you feel incredibly enlarged. Because, you know, they are seeing things from a different perspective to you and you come away with, with a sense of, of, of real having made space for the other, and, and that's important. And that conversation is so fundamental to Judaism. Um, I, I don't know of any other civilization than Judaism, all of whose canonical texts are anthologies of arguments. You know, and if they ain't got a decent argument, it ain't Jewish, you know. And so, you know, and, and the greatest figures in the Bible argue with God himself. Abraham does, Moses does, Jeremiah does, Job does, Jonah does. I mean, that's part of the dialectic of faith. 
And uh, so with all the biblical chronologies, so with the Mishnah, Rabbi X says this, Rabbi Y says that. And no one ever eliminates the argument. Even if the argument has been resolved in favor of Hillel over Shammai, we still repeat the teaching of Shammai. So I think there's an argument with atheists that enlarges us. I think it was those profoundly humanist atheists uh, that Rav Cook was talking about. No, I mean, I entirely agree. We need uh, atheists. Uh, we people of faith need atheists. Like, uh, I'm not analogous to the Shabbos Goy. <laughs> Jewish community needs. Yeah, no, we, we, but in a much more profound level, we need that conversation about it. And the, they don't always realize that the reverse is also true. Right. But sometimes they do. Sometimes they do. And then one has a really deep conversation. I know that I'm going to be thinking about that Shabbos Goy comment for weeks now. Can <laughs> uh, I tell you a Shabbos Goy thing? You know, the last time I made that blessing, actually, that I, I had the privilege of making over you, I made over a, a, a wonderful man who won the Nobel Prize for Literature, Seamus Heaney. And uh, he was taking part in a National Holocaust Memorial Day service. And I, He's a wonderful, wonderful man, and I made the blessing over him. And he told me a, a lovely story, which I share with you. Um, he came back one day, uh, a Saturday, with a bright, shiny sixpence. I don't know what that is in contemporary currency. And his mother said, Seamus, where did you get that money from? And he said, well, you know, the Coens around the corner, they asked me to come in and switch their lights on and... You know, they asked me to be their Shabbos guy and they gave me this sixpence. And Seamus' mother said, Seamus, you're going to take that money straight back. You will never receive payment for helping someone else observe their religion. And what a beautiful sentiment. And that was hearing a Catholic, you know, that made me feel so deeply moved as a Jew. And sometimes in these conversations between different faiths or people with faith and without faith, there's a real meeting between soul and soul, which is an epiphany. I'm wondering if each of you could talk a little bit, uh, just to move it to a more personal direction, I'm very curious if you could describe your upbringing in faith a little bit. When you were a boy, um, were, your, were your parents uh, committed Catholics, and is that where... You imbibed it, and were there teachers, were there schools? Like, how did you become what you became? Well, it was a very um, multicultural family. My father actually came from this city, from Toronto. He was an Anglican. And my mother belonged to this big Quebecois family, and she was Catholic. But not everybody. My, her father was a Voltairean anti-clerical. And so there was everything in the family. And I was given, I suppose, a, a more or less conventional Catholic education catechism didn't take at all and then somehow later on as an adolescent I began to get intuitions about, about this and I guess when I was in McGill I was very dissatisfied of course with the Quebec Catholic Church who was not at that time <clears throat> but you know we had this link with France so some small media in Quebec were in touch with the latest French theology Congar de Lubac which turned out to be the theology which inspired Vatican II. So I was tremendously inspired by that as an undergraduate before it happened, right? And that carried me ever since. But it was a kind of discovery of a quite 
different understanding of the Catholic faith than the ones that I was... When you say intuitions, what kind of intuitions did you have as an adolescent? Well, one very powerful intuition from reading the New Testament, from the Christ of the New Testament, and then I remember a very powerful sense when I was in an, actually in an Orthodox church at Easter, saying that hymn. And, and I give you a sense of these intuitions now, but they were, they'd be not entirely articulate, but much more articulate than they would have been then. Right. I recognize them now as things that drew me on. My late father um, came over as a refugee from Poland at the age of six, had to leave school at the age of 14 to help support the family, sold schmatters with our London equivalent of the Lower East Side. I was never a success in business um, and never complained. And somehow faith was the support of his life as it was of my late mother's, you know, I always used to, uh, one English journal once asked me who were the most influential people in my life, and I said my late father who would rather lose a friend than compromise a principal, and my late mother who kept all the friends my father lost. (laughs) (laughs) And somehow, you know, he could have been broken by circumstance. But he won't talk, you know, and there was one moment I will never forget, you know, there was a time when Jews did not wear yarmulkes in the streets. Um, and so it was in my childhood, they just didn't. Um, but dad always felt very proud as a Jew. He had a very simple faith, very unquestioning faith, uh, which I saw as transformative. I, you know, it just... And uh, I happened to be, you know, I, I started wearing my yarmulke in the street, and we were having a, on, on, uh, we were on holiday one year, and we went to the local synagogue on the Sabbath, and I was walking back with my father, who was wearing a hat, um, and I was wearing a yarmulke. And, of course, a, a very well-intentioned person from the synagogue saw us walking along and ran up uh, to my father and said, I think your son's forgotten to take his yarmulke off. And my father turned around to him. He was only trying to be nice and said, no son of mine will ever be ashamed to be a Jew in public. And he just taught us to walk tall. And that was a very powerful thing. And, you know, I've always felt that. I've always felt incredibly relaxed. And, you know, with that faith in faith itself that, you know, God is my light and my salvation, of whom then shall I be afraid. But, of course, my parents didn't really know very much. So when I was, as I mentioned, when I was an undergraduate student, I came to America, bought a Greyhound bus ticket, went around America looking for all the famous rabbis that I'd heard of. And I met many of them, and, and it was of all types. And wherever I went, two names kept coming up in the conversation that they, they said I had to meet. Uh, one was, was, uh, one was uh, the late Rabbi Soloveitchik, and one was the late Lubavitcher Rabbi. Um, and uh, I had the privilege of meeting both. And those two encounters with Rabbi Soloveitchik, the greatest thinker, Jewish thinker of the 20th century, and Rabbi Schneerson, the greatest Jewish leader of the 20th century, 
changed my life. But there was one thing that was absolutely fascinating in my encounter with the rabbi, which I, I never forgot. I was a 20-year-old student, second-year undergraduate at Cambridge. There, had, there was no reason. There were thousands of people waiting to see this man. And they all laughed at me in 770 Eastern Park when I, when I said, you know, I want to go and have them. Go meet the Lubavitcher Rebbe. They said, you know, well, yeah, in three, five years, you come back. Anyway, eventually they found time, and the Rebbe gave me a long... And I asked him all my very undergraduate, sophomoric questions, and he answered them very quickly. And then he turned the tables and started asking me questions. What was I doing for Jewish life in Cambridge, and so on and so forth, you know. And I was very English in those days, and I began with a wonderfully tortuous... Cambridge sentence in the situation in which I find myself. And the rubber actually cut across me and said, no one finds themselves in a situation. They put themselves in a situation. And if you put yourself in that situation, you can put yourself in another situation. And from then on, he was encouraging me, this unknown kid from a long way away, to go and, 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 and take responsibility and organize Jewish life. And many years later, I explained to uh, people that this was a critical moment for me because everyone had seen the Lubavitcher Rebbe as a Rebbe with thousands of followers. And I said that was not the point at all. A good leader creates followers. But a great leader creates leaders. And that was, for me, what the Rebbe was. He challenged me to lead. And when you meet two real greats like that, who, you know, were different in kind from the academics I met at Cambridge and later at Oxford, they weren't just brilliant, but they were also, you know, servants of something much bigger. Um, you cannot but be transformed by them. And for me, you know, one of the great epiphanies is always seeing how faith transforms lives and speaks in Lincoln's lovely phrase, to the better angels of our nature. Let's um, take that one step further. Both of you have talked a lot about not just the individual experience of religion, but communities, and how increasingly both of you are touching on the vital question of the creation of community. And you mentioned um, earlier today, you're talking about Robert Putnam's book, American Grace, but his earlier book, Bowling Alone, which was based on his article of that name, talked about this erosion of civic engagement in America, what he calls declining social capital. I'm wondering, I really was really delighted that we have so many students in the audience tonight. I'm wondering if you could talk about, um, especially among young people, about communal ties in an age which often seems so fragmented, so atomized, um, and especially when we think of multiculturalism, creating worlds within worlds within worlds, where you have communities that maybe don't integrate into the larger body politic, how do we actually begin to change that and create a larger culture where young people can feel both a loyalty to their own, their own thing and also a commitment to the countries they inhabit? In other words, what kind of common ground can we create to make a community today? Well, I think we need these very vibrant local communities, but we also need this kind of connection. And I think that when you see, I mean, multiculturalism is very badly misunderstood, very badly misunderstood outside of Canada, but also, I think, maybe a little bit in Canada, because people in Europe very often react to it as though it were an invitation to retreat into your ghetto. Right? 
But Canadian multiculturalism has always been an attempt to integrate and integrate on the understanding that the country belongs to everybody. I mean, not just the people that were here in the dis more distant past, but to everybody. So it's involved always in creating this sense of, of link, of common purpose, of common goal that links people across communities. And I think that's where uh, the, the political dimension becomes really absolutely crucial. If we let that political dimension, the dimension that we are citizens together, we want to create a country that really is proud to be in, but also we want to create a world that's going to be livable in by our children and grandchildren. Without that political dimension, this whole system does collapse into a number of very, if you like, egoistic, if that's the right word, communities that are, that are inwardly turned. And I think that is where the prophetic voice of various religious communities can play a very, very big role. I mean, don't forget this world. Don't forget this country. Reach out. And I know that, 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 that Jonathan has done tremendous things in that regard in the English context, but I think we need that very much in the Canadian context. <coughs> it is very striking that in that 2000 book, Bowling Alone, Robert Putnam was saying we've lost social capital, more people going bowling than ever, few, fewer than ever joining bowling teams. And that was a book about where is our social capital. Then 10 years later, out comes American Grace saying social capital is in fact alive and well and it exists in our religious communities. And if you are a member of a religious community, you are more likely to help a neighbor in distress, look after a pet dog if they're going on holiday, help somebody find a job, invite in somebody who's lonely or allow somebody else to cut in front of you in a traffic jam. <laughs> um, and uh, Robert Putnam um, delayed the publication of American Grace by two years because those findings were so counterintuitive uh, that he kind of distrusted his results and went back and did more research and came back with exactly the same conclusion. Religion is the great creator of communities today. Um, and uh, it's very interesting that religion creates communities sometimes of an intensity you won't find anywhere else. A leading politician in Britain once asked me what is community and uh, how I understand the word because I've written several books on it, politics, vote, the home we build together and so on. And I said, well, look, I can best explain community by saying that I give a lot of talks about a lot of different subjects to it in a lot of different countries. And when the thing, when the talk is over and we're having coffee and everyone comes up to me, they ask me questions. And wherever I am and whatever I've spoken about, it's always the same question. Do you know who I am? You know, my aunt used to uh, go to school with your mother's second cousin or my niece used to babysit for, you know, I mean, forget six degrees of separation in the Jewish community. Two Jews meet as strangers and part as mishpacha, as family. So uh, they call that Jewish geography. So, and it's an absolutely extraordinary thing and it functions right across the world. So I said community is where they know who you are and where they miss you when you're not there. And it was very interesting that this politician, very bright man, did not understand that. In other words, we have a kind of sense of uh, corporate belonging and mutual responsibility in religious communities that you don't readily find out there. And it's very interesting now that we've opted for 
virtual communities through uh, Facebook and, and social networking software. And uh, Sherry Turkle of MIT called her book on the impact of this, you know, the texting phenomenon on, on young people. She called it alone together. So virtual community ain't real community. And I think I must commend Moses on his foresight 3,300 years ago when he said, on the seventh day, thou shalt not text. <laughs> you know, we needed the liberation from slavery in Egypt. We now need the liberation of slavery to smartphones. So um, that is, number one, the power of community. Of course we have to be open to the fact that the very act of joining lots of people together to make a collective us, which unites at the same time divides because for every us there's a them, the people not like us and that is why um, it's an imperative I think in all diverse societies today that we have also to reach out the hand of friendship across communities and there's a very beautiful thing in Britain in British jury we did this in one very simple way of doing something we call mitzvah day in which we get every Jewish organization in the country to get its members to do acts of kindness to people who are not members of our community. The Hindu community in Britain loved this, and they said, we must do one ourselves, and they call it Siwa Day, which is, you know, mitzvah and Siwa are the ways of talking about a good deed, really. And last year, the Hindu community said to the Jewish community, why don't we do it on the same day? And that became a wonderful way of joining the two communities in acts of kindness beyond their communities. I think uh, Britain does that, and I'd love to see it everywhere else. We do actually get together across the faiths as well. Professor Taylor, I wanted to conclude our discussion by basically talking about how can certain people um, transcend the kind of thinking box they're in. What I mean is that um, Emmanuel Levinas, who is a wonderful Jewish philosopher, writes that for the majority of modern Jews, and I think it's really the majority of modern people, there are certain things that have taken place, like a door that opened, and you sort of can't go back. And when you walk through that door, there's things like science and psychoanalysis and sociology and cultural studies. And you grow up and you're born in this world where the idea of imbibing faith is much harder. I'm wondering... And you get caught in that mindset, like a box, and it's hard to see past that. Now, you talked about authenticity, which I've always been intrigued by, because if people are really authentic to themselves, um, that's both liberating, but you can also move them away from any sense of adhering to some sort of larger attachment or transcendent attachment. How can people, smart, intelligent, rational, well-meaning people who are living their lives, what place does faith play in such a life? Especially if it's not there already. How can they come to it? You know, you talked about tone deafness. Can we take a person who doesn't think in these terms and talk to them in a way where they can begin to think in these terms? Well, I don't think, yeah, exactly talk them into it because, right. as you say, I mean, uh, Weber uses this expression too, religios unmusicales, I'm religiously unmusical. The same, it's like the tone, I mean, it's very interesting. And Weber used it in a kind of semi-ironic way because he was kind of both self-critical and also espousing that. Obviously, Dawkins was just espousing that. Mm. 
So that, that gives you a hint that if you, somebody's really tone deaf and you want to explain why Beethoven is great, you just yeah. can't do it. Right? So something has to touch them, some sense of the limits of this, some sense of what can go beyond this. And that's very hard to program. I don't know. I think that people of faith, really remarkable people of faith, manage to touch people by what they are much more than by any arguments that they can actually deploy. But it seems clear to me that that lives led simply within this very circumscribed uh, box are somehow missing something. They're missing even an aspiration that, that goes beyond that, that box. And once people get a hint of this, then, of course, you can re-describe the situation. I mean, you were saying about you're supposed to bring community to, to this person, this British politician, and he didn't get what you were saying. I mean, that's a very arresting situation when you think it's very clear to me, and let me articulate it, and you don't get it. But if they do begin to get it, or if, just if, the fact that you're saying that, and they're, they have a certain sense that there's something deep in your life, and you're saying that, and they don't get it, well, I'm worried I don't get it. Let me, try to, let me try to see what it could be. That can open something, which can open a conversation. Yeah. But unlike earlier ages, we're in a world where that doesn't, that's not immediately obvious that one should look into this. Right? Is there, so in a way, we're talking about inspiring or allowing people to think bigger, yeah. to think beyond. But I mean, even take authenticity. See, I don't. I think of authenticity as the ethic in our civilization and time. Right? I think it really starts with the Romantic period, but it becomes universal in the 60s and, and 70s. The idea that there's a particular way of being human, which is mine. Right? Okay, that is a certain framework in which to think out your life. But now, let's think that up. Okay? You find the sources. Where do you find the sources that will speak to you? You can't find them in yourself. Only. You find them in someone else. You always find them in someone else. And where are they to be found? Where are the really meaningful connections that are going to give you a sense of who you really are? You only get that in conversation. So the issue can arise, do I need, if you like, God as an interlocutor in order to know what I really am? And see, that is something, that is a conclusion you can come to very powerfully from out of the very ethic of authenticity itself. There was one incident that actually provoked me to write the book, The Great Partnership, uh, which I think perhaps uh, is one way of talking about it. In uh, 2009, the British Humanists Association um, paid to uh, cover London buses with a big slogan which said God probably doesn't exist so stop worrying and enjoy life and I said that's a really interesting sentence and it contains a really interesting word and the interesting word is probably and I said that's now go figure um, read uh, Lord Rees, the, the uh, president of the Royal Society, Britain's most distinguished scientist, uh, read his book, Just Six Numbers, and you will see the probability of the universe existing is almost zero, because uh, had any of the six fundamental mathematical 
forces that define the nature of the physical universe been different to a, a trillionth of a degree, the universe wouldn't have come into being. So the universe is improbable. Uh, the emergence of life from inanimate matter uh, is so uh, extraordinary that uh, a convinced atheist like Francis Crick uh, was convinced that in order to explain the emergence of life on Earth, you had to suppose that it came from Mars, thus creating another question, how did life emerge in Mars? But, and then, of course, that one of these three million life forms that we currently know that exist should ex actually be capable of asking the question, why? is the ultimate impossibility, yet, of course, only when human beings first asked the question, why, did the universe become conscious of itself? So everything that exists is wildly improbable on fairly secular scientific and mathematical grounds. Then ask, who is the most influential person who ever lived? Well, given that there are 2.2 billion Christians, 1.3 billion Muslims, and a few Jews, most of whom are here tonight, uh, <laughs> count Abraham as their spiritual uh, inspiration, I think you've got to say, Abraham, how probable was it that Abraham, a man who commanded no armies, ruled no empire, performed no miracles, and delivered no prophecies, became the most influential person there was? And then think, how come this tiny little handful of people, 0.2% of the population of the world, who Moses in Deuteronomy 7 verse 7 says is we are the smallest of all peoples should nonetheless have been attacked by some of the greatest empires the world has ever known from Egypt to the pharaohs all the way through to the Third Reich and the Soviet Union. Every one of those civilizations, each of which bestrode the narrow world like a colossus and seemed invulnerable in its day, has now been consigned to history and this tiny little people is still alive and well and mainly in the University of Toronto this evening and still singing The Jewish People Lives. So I conclude that nothing interesting is probable. And then I define faith as the defeat of probability by the power of possibility. And when it, we see that it's the faith of Moses or an Amos or an Isaiah and the possibility in this world in which so many people say homo hominis lupus est, man is wolf to man, that you could dream of constructing a society built on justice and compassion and the sanctity of life and the inviolable and inalienable dignity of every human individual. When you could conceive that somebody could think of this world as created by God in love and forgiveness and he then asks us to love and forgive. These are possibilities, signals of transcendence that when we see their power to transform the world are our evidence of the power of faith. And even if we do not have it, when we catch a glimpse of its transformative effect, we are drawn to it. And that's what drew me to it, and I think it will continue to draw human beings as long as there are humans on God's earth. Professor Taylor. Professor Taylor, Chief Rabbi Sachs, you've, you've opened up some possibilities for this e us this evening. 
and we want to thank you very much for speaking to us. Before you all go, there will be a book signing uh, by the Chief Rabbi outside. Are, are you signing books as well? Yes. yes. Um, Mr. Taylor also has agreed to sign books. Uh, I'm Zach Kay. I'm the head of Hillel, Executive Director of Hillel Great Toronto. And I just want to thank uh, a few people who made tonight possible before you uh, disappear into the cold. Um, I want to thank uh, the Krauss family for uh, sponsoring tonight and uh, make, making this possible. Um, when uh, Tori Motion and Jake Hellman and Elliot Malavit approached us uh, in the summer to, make the, to discuss having this event here on campus, we uh, were very thrilled to, to make, it, make it possible. I think you heard tonight about community and, and faith, and Hillel on campus certainly represents that, and not only community and faith but in the Jewish context, but way beyond. And one of our partners tonight, as you heard, was, is uh, the University of Toronto through the Multi-Faith Centre and Richard Chambers, who's here tonight. And, of course, the political science department, who we're very grateful for their, their support as well. I want to thank uh, Jay Kelman and Elliot Malamud for uh, uh, facilitating tonight here on the campus and making it possible for so many students uh, uh, to be here. Uh, President Naylor had to run to another event tonight. He had four events this evening, so we're very grateful, as you, as, as you know, as you heard for him being here and to uh, uh, do the intro introductory remarks. Um, I think the uh, numerous uh, departments of the university were involved as well, and um, they know who they, they are, and, and many of them are here tonight, and we're very grateful for their support. Uh, to the Chief Rabbi and to Professor Taylor, um, I think this has been a, a most uh, fascinating evening. Uh, we in Hillel look forward to these kind of occasions at least once or twice a year to what I call a, uh, a peak, as opposed to the, the valleys, the, the regular, rigorous uh, days that we uh, enjoy. And, and this has been a, a most illuminating, exciting opportunity to engage in, uh, with two uh, of the most significant uh, uh, theologians, if you like, in the world today. And I'm privileged that uh, Hillel and Torah Motion were able to come together to present tonight. So thank you very much indeed.